Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When Diplomacy Fails presents Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails A project five years in the making the Franco-Prussian War the Seven Years War Of the When Diplomacy Fails Special on Napoleon The Crimean War To When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War I the Dutch Revolt To the When Diplomacy Fails Special on the Thirty Years War The July Crisis Anniversary Project The Swedish Deluge Britain Goes to War The 1916 To the Rising. Franco-Dutch War of 1672 This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the War of the Polish Succession, which originally aired as one episode on the 18th of July, 2012. Welcome to the podcast. As always, my name is Zach. So this is the remastered War of the Polish Succession. It's an interesting war. It's a fun war. Arguably, it's one of the most unknown wars in the 1700s so hope you appreciate this renewed spotlight on it i've always found polish history really really interesting so i hope you guys do too and i hope you let me know what you think through the usual channels so yeah when diplomacy fails remastered what are you all thinking of it i for one am really enjoying your guys's reactions and seeing what you all think it's so nice to be able to give you guys this gift and see you all really enjoy something that I give out for free. I find it really rewarding myself to know that all these things are reaching you and all the work that I put into it has really paid off. Now that's not to make you feel as though you should be giving me something for this, but if you feel as though you would like to, that's fine. It can be something as simple as borrowing a t-shirt, but you know the best way to help this podcast, guys, is to become a patron. 
because that's how we get further in the world. If you're interested in doing that, go to wdfpodcast.com, click on the Patreon banner, and the rest will be history. The rest will be diplomacy, but diplomacy succeeding. But indeed, you will be supporting the podcast and making me a very happy history friend. I really appreciate it so much, guys. And I'm so happy that I've been able to bring all this stuff to you. I do it out of love for you all, whether you patronize me or not. The fact that you're listening to this, talking about this, and even thinking about history, listening to my voice right now, it it's really exciting. And it kind of makes me really, really excited for the next five years, because who knows what those will bring. But yeah, so we should probably get into this, and I should probably stop rambling. Who knew that there was a war fought over the crown of Poland? I certainly didn't before I looked into this. In fact, most of the 1730s in general are are overshadowed by what comes before or what comes after the other decades. So even getting into the 1730s itself and seeing what the situation was like at that time, I felt was important and very illuminating because it gave us a bigger picture and a bigger impression of what the rest of the century and the decades that came before were like. I mean, we know we've been in the 17th century, we've seen Louis XIV, the War of the Spanish Succession, etc., and we've also seen the Seven Years' War. It's true that we haven't done the War of the Austrian Succession, that would almost directly follow this war, but we have done pretty much everything else in between. So so this always stood out to me as a good kind of stopgap in between the stuff we know and the stuff we don't. I still feel like it's a very important war, and because Polish history has always fascinated me, mainly because it's relatively unknown, this war has always stood out to me as, well, if not necessarily one of my favourites, because to a degree I can't really listen to these old ones anymore. It is certainly one that I'm still proud that I did, and one that I managed to wrap my head around. If only because Stanislaus Lijinski, or my good friend Stan, appears again, and it's always nice to cover someone like him. Stan himself raises a good few points about Polish patriotism and the actual struggle, the national struggle, that Poles went through for, well, the next two or three hundred years, really, with their independence not really properly secured until after the Cold War. So, here is the latest installment of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered. You guys are doing a real good job of letting me know how you feel about it, and I'm so, so happy that you're all enjoying it so much. It really makes all those late nights and ridiculous hours of recording worth it when I know that you guys have received it and are listening to it with such hunger and eagerness for nostalgia and trips down memory lane. So thanks very much, guys. I know you're doing a great job spreading the word. I've seen the download spiking, and it's not just because there's two episodes released every single day for five weeks. Five weeks? Yes, that took a long time to sort out. Anyway... Let's get into the war, because I'm aware of the fact that there's a bit too much of these self-promotion things going on, but hey, I think I'm worth it. And you are too, so let's get down to it. With just as much eagerness as I had five years ago, it is my pleasure once again to take you to the year 1731. I have never been afraid of making patriots but I disdain and despise all of their efforts. The War of the Polish Succession drew in much interest and participation from Europe's courts and provides a fascinating window into the complicated alliance systems which emerged following the death of Louis XIV and the end of the War of the Spanish Succession. 
If the end of that war had been expected to usher in a new era of peace, then all would have been disappointed. European statesmen became strikingly active as the years progressed, switching up their combinations of alliances and making way for new combinations purely for the sake of convenience. Up to 1740, when a certain Prussian explodes onto the scene, these moves and counter-moves characterised European diplomacy, while they were underlined by a critical event in the 1730s, which took place in a comparatively unimportant commonwealth, Poland. What began as a series of intrigues was transformed by the vacancy in the Polish throne. Having fought a war for the throne of Spain in living memory, and they would fight a war for the Austrian throne in the years to come, it seemed somewhat reckless to embark on yet another conflict for yet another throne, but the Europeans did just that, and this is their story. I gave this short prologue for you guys because with all the twists and turns that goes on in this episode, and with the familiar rivalries making their presence felt again, Poland can seem like something of a sideshow, and indeed we don't even get to the issue of Poland until a bit later on in the story. Having said that though, the story is a fascinating one, and because of all that goes on, I feel that this method brings that story to you the best. Anyway, let's begin. When the Earl of Chesterfield and Count Zinzendorf signed the Second Treaty of Vienna on the 16th of March, 1731, it signalled the end of a little-known period in history that saw France and Britain allied against Austria and Spain. It was an alliance created due to the circumstances of the era. France, after the war of the Spanish succession, needed security and help in checking the growth of Spain, which in itself sounds insane, while Britain wanted to protect Hanover and create a wall against Russian plans of expansion, and also Prussian plans of expansion, in Central Europe. The Anglo-French alliance would only last from 1716 to 31, although it was, for all intents and purposes, redundant by the end of the Anglo-Spanish War of 1727. In that war, Britain had moved diplomatically to ensure that Spain's ally Austria would not intervene on Spain's behalf, and such a move meant that Spain had to withdraw humiliated from Gibraltar, the whole reason it launched the war against Britain, and end the war in 1729, two years after it began, with nothing to really show for it. Spain was angry at Austria for not coming to its aid, and Britain was also a bit miffed that France didn't come to its aid, so both seemed to unofficially abandon their respective alliances. Another key reason why Louis XV had been so eager for an alliance with Britain before was to reinforce his own position as absolute monarch of a Catholic Bourbon France. More specifically, Louis XV didn't really have much of an opinion on such matters because he was only a young child by the time the Anglo-French alliance was signed in 1716. Louis XIV's death tore a hole in the French succession, and if you listen to the War of the Spanish Succession episode, you'll know that there was nearly a war launched in the name of the French throne, and it was only saved because Louis XV survived. So long had Louis XIV reigned that his great-grandson of two years old, sick with measles, was all that remained to succeed him in 1715, thanks mainly to the untimely deaths of his son, grandson, and first great-grandson. Louis XV was in fact the second-born great-grandchild of Louis XIV, His brother had also died within weeks of his father, meaning that France entered into a kind of regency until Louis XV came of age. With an uncle on the throne of Spain and enemies all over Europe eager for a measure of revenge against France after the most recent war, 
the young king of France would have his hands full from the moment he sought to deal with matters of state. The rapprochement with Britain thus gave the young Louis XV and his court some wiggle room. Britain would no longer threaten French interests at home and abroad, and in return French land armies would be poised to defend Hanover, the German electorate now fused to Britain, owing to Britain's new royal family. But the essential need for an alliance with Britain vanished when Louis XV's son, also called Louis because history loves us, the Grand Dauphin of France, was born in 1729. This Louis would father the now infamous Louis XVI since the Grand Dauphin, in our case here, would not actually inherit the French throne. Louis XVI would be deposed and de-headed in the French Revolution of 1789. Louis, the Grand Dauphin, styled as the successor to his father's throne, would actually die in 1765 and never rule France, as Louis XV would rule until 1774 and outlive him, echoing his great-grandfather, Louis XIV, for longevity. But Louis XV, I know it's a bit complicated, guys, Louis XV didn't know this at the time, and there was great rejoicing throughout France that a successor to the throne had been found, ending the succession crisis which had plagued the French monarchy for so long. You see, Louis XV was now sure of his own security and of his country's future stability, so he saw less and less use for the Anglo-French alliance. In fact, Louis XV was far more interested in cozying up to the Spanish instead. But the Spanish, led by their widowed queen Elizabeth Farnese, were meant to be in alliance with Austria, a status which would have been incompatible with French plans. Additionally, the Spanish had since cultivated a more pleasant line of relations with Britain, since the latter had held back the Spanish in the Anglo-Spanish War, since what else would improve your relationship than fighting a recent war? But Louis believed he could change this. He wanted to reunite the two Bourbon crowns and, in turn, reunify France and Spain. Such a move would undoubtedly provoke a war, though, especially if he tried to do it against everyone else's will, so Louis knew he would have to tread carefully. Thus, we've kind of got a brief introduction to the complicated European alliance system, but the major powers, to clear things up a bit, included Britain, France, Austria, the Netherlands, for the most part Spain, and to a debatable degree, Prussia and Russia. Spanish power was found in the fact that it simply couldn't be counted out, especially if one managed to pool naval or military resources with it, and form a momentary union to be pitted against one's enemies. Alone, Spanish power was nakedly weak, but in a similar vein to the Netherlands, by adding that power in, the scales could be tipped in your favour. This explains the courtship of a state like Spain, even though we know now from experience that Madrid's decline was self-evident by this stage. London feared French diplomacy with respect to Spain, not because it necessarily feared Spain, but because it was believed that a Franco-Spanish combination, such as that which held off the Allies just barely during the War of the Spanish Succession, was too dangerous in a strategic and dynastic sense to allow the two powers to come back together. Thus Louis' task to bind Spain and France closer together would not be an easy one, because everyone would be looking on cautiously, Yet, Louis' difficulty in getting what he wanted was found in two other major avenues, other than the simple opposition from much of Europe. First, Britain's Prime Minister at the time, the political giant Robert Walpole, also understood the need to get Spain on side, and he began courting Spain and sending tempting offers of a joint alliance with Britain, Austria and the Netherlands, which would really tie up all of Europe in a safe little bundle. 
Secondly, Spain's Queen Elizabeth Farnese herself was in favour of an alliance with Britain once it became clear that Austria alone could no longer be relied upon. Once the war with Britain ended in 1729, Spain tried to forget what had just happened and, and focused its attention on creating an alliance with either its former enemy or France. As if Louis's plans for a Franco-Spanish alliance weren't beleaguered enough, his own first minister, Cardinal Fleury, was there slowing things down between the two Bourbon states, causing Elizabeth to become more and more inclined towards Britain. Why was Fleury content to block his master? In Fleury's mind, getting Spain and Britain together would only aggravate their inherent differences and perhaps even lead to another war. You see, both Spain and Britain had claims to territory in the Americas. Their claims often overlapped and there was a natural rivalry revolving around trade, which was often casually brought out into the open as as both sides skirmished with the other at sea. Fleury in the end proved correct, as this overseas rivalry eventually prevented the Anglo-Spanish alliance from coming forward, or any great rapprochement between Madrid and London coming to pass. So Elizabeth decided to do a turnaround in diplomacy based on the strength of the French position in Europe, and due to the growth of anti-English feeling in Spain, despite the fact that she herself had been quite pro-British at one point. Elizabeth was also painfully aware of the incompatibility of plans for Spanish expansion with those of Austria's, because these primarily involved Italy, where she wished to install her son at the expense of Austrian interests. Elizabeth herself is believed to have held a personal vendetta against the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles VI, for his role in the War of the Spanish Succession. In yet another example of how the War of the Spanish Succession echoed throughout the ages, Archduke Charles, if you remember him all the way back to the beginning of the 1700s, he had at one stage been a candidate for the Spanish throne, but when his father and then his brother had died, he became Holy Roman Emperor, and he had fought against Elizabeth's husband, Philip V, for his right to sit on the Spanish throne. Despite the fact that Philip won this battle, mainly because Charles became Holy Roman Emperor, but also because the Spanish preferred Philip, Liz seems to have never let it go and simultaneously believed that France was a safer bet, even if the road to get the French alliance had hardly been direct. By allowing Elizabeth to come to her own conclusions, which he expected her to reach, Cardinal Fleury was able to present subsequent Spanish approaches to France as a victory in his own diplomacy. This was a victory which Louis XV greatly appreciated. Arthur Hassel, in his book, The Balance of Power, 1715-89, notes that, For, though differences might arise, the relations of France and Spain were henceforth more cordial, and the saying of the Spanish ambassador in 1700, Henceforth there are no Pyrenees, seems likely to have been realised once again. Once it became clear that Spain would not side with Britain in an alliance, both Austria and Britain realised that the old alliance between them would have to be resurrected once again if their security was to be guaranteed in Western Europe. The Holy Roman Emperor Charles VI was only too happy to send dignitaries to Britain and make it official, surrounded as he now was by pretty much the same situation as in 1702, that of an Austria surrounded by Spain and France. Charles was Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Desperate to see that an alliance with Britain went ahead, so he agreed to remove one of the issues Britain had with Austrian policy, the Ostend Company. The Ostend Company was a trading company established in 1722, along the same lines as the East India companies of the British and Dutch. Despite its near-complete lack of navy and the relative youth of the Ostend Company, Heavy Austrian investment and the copying of their rivals ensured that it was still a smaller, if irritating, rival of the British and Dutch around the world. Charles, though, was seeking friendship with Britain, so he promised to completely dissolve the company, which in itself was quite a big sacrifice, in order to make the alliance with London easier to obtain. This move delighted Britain, and Philip Stanhope, the fourth Earl of Chesterfield, was destined to make the agreement between the two states official. This was done on the 16th of March 1731 with the Treaty of Vienna. On a side note, and as if we needed any more links to the War of the Spanish Succession, signing the treaty on Austria's behalf at this stage was none other than Eugene of Savoy. At this stage then, the four states of Britain, France, Spain and Austria had organised themselves into two armed camps, expecting another conflict to erupt for the same flimsy reason as all the other ones had before. The prime mover behind the alliance in Britain had been the Duke of Newcastle, a career statesman and Whig politician of the old school, with Robert Walpole as his mentor. The Duke of Newcastle believed that in Austria, Britain could find some diplomatic stability, and that the changing diplomatic scene would finally settle down, and that this would enable British statesmen to plan for the future. This desire on the part of Newcastle reflected the fact that British foreign policy seemed to be sort of flying by the seat of its pants for the two decades or so after the War of the Spanish Succession. By pursuing this new line of diplomacy with Austria, established as we saw in the Treaty of Vienna, Newcastle was in fact cementing a facet of British foreign policy, the Austrian Alliance, which would remain in place until 1756. The irony is that Newcastle was the one to break that policy in 1756, and that when he did, it led to the Seven Years' War, during the course of which 
he lost the premiership. With the armed camps forming in Europe, it seemed as though Europe again was preparing for its next great war, though it would be hyperbole to state that any real sense of where the next conflict would come from was really in the air by 1731. Instead, Europeans prepared with a sense of resignation for their competition across the world and within Europe to ignite yet another petty squabble into war. Prepared as they were for the worst, and determined as they may have been to ensure their state against the frequencies of war, the actual source of the coming war caught many by surprise. Of the four involved powers by 1731, it was perhaps only Austria who understood the situation unfolding in Eastern Europe, as Poland, Lithuania's monarch, Augustus the Strong, on the throne of Poland since the Great Northern War of the early 1700s, was slowly dying. Augustus the Strong ruled Poland not necessarily well for the 30 years since we last left him after the Great Northern War. While his desire to mould the Polish crown into that of an absolute monarchy met with little results, his reliance on Peter the Great of Russia to both reinstall him in 1709 and support his rule thereafter meant that Poland had slowly slipped into the status of a Russian protectorate. Augustus in actual fact did little to prevent this from happening. He was fearful that Peter would arrive with an army should his policies not favour Russia, and he wanted the good thing that he had going to continue, so he ended up presiding over a somewhat shameful period in Polish history, as he watched practically all elements of Polish sovereignty fall into the greedy, imperialistic hands of a rising Russia. Peter was only too happy to capitalise on a civil war in Poland in 1716, and he posed as mediator, well, in fact, using threats of military action to achieve the desired goal. When he had forced both sides to the bargaining table, Peter intimidated the Polish Sejm, or Parliament, to approve numerous measures designed to tie Poland closer to Russia and insert several clauses legally binding Poland to a Russian friendship. Perhaps because he originally hailed from Saxony and was thus no more Polish than Peter the Great, Augustus didn't feel the decline as personally as he might have done if he had actually been of the Polish stock. Either way, the result was that by the time Augustus was on death's door, he almost certainly knew that the glory days of Poland were long gone, and that his absolutist experiment had failed. The agony of Poland, that of oppression, subservience and persecution, is often set at the date of its liquidation and partition in 1795, but the real Poland ceased to exist once Augustus signed over its autonomy to Russia in the so-called Silent Same of 1717. Historian Norman Davies in his book God's Playground, which is a comprehensive account of Poland from about the end of the 18th century to the present day, noted that the Silent Same of 1717 effectively terminated the independence of Poland and Lithuania. After civil war and chaos robbed the Commonwealth of any ability to resist, Peter wasted little time in taking advantage, even while Charles XII of Sweden, his true enemy, at that stage was still alive and very much at bay. By forcing through the measures in Poland's parliament, or same, while Russian soldiers guarded the doors and permitted nobody to speak, Peter's act represented the first in a long line of interference in Polish business. The Polish army was reduced to less than 15,000 men, she was not allowed to declare an offensive war without Russia's okay. She was not allowed to maintain Saxon troops in Poland unless they maintained a strictly royal guard, and only as a royal guard, and numerous churches were demolished, just because. 
In the space of six hours, which was the length of the same meeting, Polish independence had been virtually eradicated by Russia. Augustus, once chosen by the Poles as their best candidate, cared only for the succession of his son to this so-called throne. He was trying to make the Polish throne a hereditary institution, which was something it hadn't been in over 200 years. He wasn't exactly guaranteed to be successful in this venture, not least because it was a massive change in policy for the Poles, who had seen constitutional monarchs rule only by the permission of the Polish same and not because of blood ties. But Augustus in 1731 also knew that the security of his son's succession would never be guaranteed so long as his old enemy was waiting in the wings. Yes, folks, our good friend Stan, or Stanislaus Lijinski, makes his return onto the world stage here. Stan would in fact live to be 88 years old, a remarkable achievement in 18th century Europe, and even though many years had passed by 1731 since the Great Northern War, when he had originally been the King of Poland, albeit mainly because of Charles XII of Sweden's support and only for a very short time, Stan's wish to sit on the Polish throne again had not changed. He would also have help in the form of his son-in-law, who just happened to be Louis XV, the King of France. Louis wanted to insert his father-in-law onto the Polish throne, as he could see the advantages of having an ally in Eastern Europe, one which could surround Austria, perhaps slow down Prussia, and certainly give Russia something to think about. Eager as he was to create an alliance in Eastern Europe, Louis did not seem to realise that Polish kings didn't have the power that they used to have. What Louis did realise, though, was that interference in the Russian sphere of influence would likely provoke Empress Anna of Russia, who had taken over from Peter, to declare war on France. So Louis now began to see the necessity of preparing for a war, not in Western, but in Eastern Europe. He would place Stan on the throne after Augustus the Strong died, he would pull Poland away from Russia's grasp, and he would create for France a new, solid ally in the east of the continent. The Poles would thereby be indebted to France, and Louis would elongate the alliance by approaching the Swedes, who also burned for revenge against the Russians after the Great Northern War. That was the grand strategic plan for Louis anyway, and he attempted to get Spain on side for his plans by promising French help if the Spanish would invade Italy, as a result of the wider European war in the West that Louis predicted would be triggered if he did go around meddling in Polish, Russian, Swedish affairs. Such an offer was tempting to Queen Elizabeth of Spain, since she craved areas in Italy which fell under the Holy Roman sphere of influence, officially. If Spain attacked Italy, then that would surely distract Austria long enough to march its new candidate into Poland, and if the Austrians indeed did disapprove of the candidate stand for the throne of Poland, they, because of the war in Italy, wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Once Stan was installed there, Louis knew he would have to contend with Russia, but so long as Spain could hold back Austria, or at least keep it a bit busy, French arms and a hoped-for Swedish alliance made Louis confident that he could hold the Russians back. But the rest of Europe had not been sitting back and waiting for Louis to do something, they had instead made their alliance official. You see, the main reason why Louis expected the interference in Polish affairs to result in a wider European war was because on the 13th of September 1732, Russia, Prussia and Austria signed the Treaty of the Black Eagles, an alliance which unified the three states in their opposition to a Poland governed by a candidate they didn't approve of. 
In this, the intentions of the three powers were meant to deter Louis from trying to place Stan on the throne, since nobody except maybe Louis liked Stan all that much. It was also believed that strengthening France by letting it ally with Poland would be detrimental to pretty much everyone in Eastern Europe, except for maybe Sweden and Poland itself. So the decision to keep Poland weak, insignificant and allied to Russia, Prussia and Austria was not a hard one to make. The three states decided that infant Manuel, brother of the Portuguese king, would be a good choice as the successor to Augustus, as all enjoyed good relations with Portugal at this time. Of course, this choice left Augustus the Strong in the dark, because he had wanted his son Augustus III to inherit the throne from him once he died. The not-so-strong protests of Augustus the Strong didn't really bother the three states, though, though at the same time it was clear that they weren't really too serious about having Manuel as King of Poland, and this reality would explode in Europe's face once Augustus II eventually died. Augustus did die on the 1st of February 1733, and Europe held its breath as the plans of the various states were expected to be put into action. It was fully expected that Louis would use force to place his father-in-law on the Polish throne, but his decision was still opposed by what had now become the two Black Eagles, since Prussia had almost immediately reneged on the treaty, for a number of reasons. At this time, Britain decided it didn't really want to war in Europe, based on yet another flimsy pretext for a state in a region it cared little for and didn't really understand, so it offered to jointly mediate the two sides' grievances along with the Dutch, to see if a peaceful solution was possible. But it wasn't possible. Stan had famously said in 1733, no doubt in a somewhat downcast tone, the Poles will nominate, but they will not support me. Pointing to the reality that, easy as it may have been for Louis to try and influence the same to place Stan on the Polish throne, keeping him there while the influential aristocratic families, many of whom were in the pay of Russia, opposed him would not be easy, and I'll touch on the impact of these families later on in the episode. Louis knew this though, and he knew very well it would mean war, war that he would have to wage in order to keep Stan on the Polish throne. The French and Spanish Prime Ministers, Fleury and Patino, respectively, determined negotiators and diplomatists in their own right, both urged their respective monarchs to hold back and not wage war yet again but their moderate voices were drowned out by the dominant war parties of the two states. In the French camp, these included the French Minister for Foreign Affairs, as well as the legendary Villars, who had commanded French armies during the War of the Spanish Succession, and virtually saved French fortunes in the twilight period of that conflict. And this was added to the determination of the two Bourbon monarchs to wage yet another war in the name of their peoples. Queen Elizabeth of Spain wanted to secure Italy as a kingdom for her sons, Don Carlos and Don Philip, to rule over, so her motherly love, in this case, could be blamed for the Bourbon's apparent willingness to fight. H. Morris Stevens, in his book, The War of the Polish Succession, describes the plans of the Bourbon Alliance, an alliance which would be made official later in 1733, when he wrote... The policy of the Bourbons was to drive the Austrians out of Italy. Charles Emmanuel was then to occupy the Milanese and Mantua. Don Carlos was to have Naples, Sicily and the Tuscan ports. Don Philip was to have Parma, Piacenza and Tuscany, while France was to have Savoy. That Charles Emmanuel, which Stevens talks about here, was actually the King of Savoy and Sardinia, and his cooperation with the Spanish and French empires 
enabled Louis's forces to march through his lands and therefore cover ground far quicker than Charles VI of Austria expected. This would become very important later on and actually helps explain the Bourbon army's Italian successes. Since Charles VI did not expect Charles Emmanuel to side with the Bourbons, due to the history, somewhat uncomfortable history, that Savoy had with France. Perhaps Charles VI remembered the war of the Spanish succession and believed Savoy would pursue a similar policy, the same one made famous by everyone's favourite Savoy national, Eugene. But this was a different Savoy to the one 30 years ago. Charles Emmanuel had been promised lands in Milan and Mantua, the two small duchies in northwest Italy, so he sided with the Bourbons. This reinforced the southeast flank of France, but still Louis' advisers, chief among them the legendary Villars, advised caution in attacking Austria too aggressively, for fear of provoking Britain or the Dutch to act. Louis was urged by Villars to strike quickly and effectively at Italy and take what he wanted before anyone else could really stop him, rather than launching a full-scale invasion of the Holy Roman Empire. This advice certainly suited Louis, since his country was by no means ready for the same kind of full-scale war experienced in the War of the Spanish Succession. The problems Louis now faced as a womanizer and glory seeker not dissimilar to his great-grandfather was in bringing his armies back to their 1702 levels of quality, while simultaneously appearing to his enemies as the ready-to-conquer warlord. The unfortunate result of these Italian schemes, which in the end proved to be the major event of this war, despite its name, was that Stan arrived in Warsaw, in Poland, under the impression that his candidacy was completely militarily supported by France, only to come to the horrifying realisation that his position was nowhere near as secure as he thought it would be. Although on the 12th of September, 1733, Stan had been elected as King of Poland, Louis had by then become far more interested in conquering Italy with Spain, and weakening the Holy Roman Empire in the process, rather than fighting some silly war in Poland with the meagre forces at his disposal. Stanislaus Leginski had thus become one of the many victims of the bizarre foreign policy of a French king who, despite the urgings of Stan's daughter and Louis' own wife Maria to save his father-in-law, practically abandoned the idea once sufficient resistance to the rule of Stan emerged. One historian, Jerome Bloom, described Louis as a perpetual adolescent called to do a man's job. The jury is divided over whether history looks down on Louis XV's reign in light of the revolution, which was to follow two generations later, or whether Louis XV really was as bad a ruler as posterity claims. Either way, Stan was stuck with this lesser Louis, who had since abandoned Poland and was now planning for a campaign against Austrian-owned Italy as the main event. As Stan's dreams were collapsing in Warsaw, Louis made the decision to declare war on Austria alongside Spain on the 10th of October 1733, and two weeks later a Franco-Savoyard army, 50,000 men strong under the command of Charles Emmanuel of Savoy, appeared in Milanese territory. The War of the Polish Succession, for all intents and purposes an Italian war, had begun. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.